and welcome to another episode of Healing Fucking Sucks. I am your host, Jackie Hall. Today on the show, we have an amazing speaker who I've had the chance to talk with and and get to know a little bit. Um, her story is phenomenal. Um, her name is Dr. Shiloh, and she is a psychotherapist, and boy, you guys are in for it today. Dr. Shiloh, how are you? Hi, I'm so good. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. I appreciate each and every one of you for taking out time in your day for being on my show. I know we all have busy lives. So, <clears throat> okay, I start my show off with one question, and there's no right or wrong answer for it. So you can just answer it however you want. And the question is, what is mental health to you? So mental health to me is anything that impacts how you feel or interact with the situation or engage with others around you. Um, I personally don't believe that we just feel mental health in our brain. I feel like it is something that impacts our whole body and our whole person. So when I think of mental health, um, I'm just also thinking of health in general because when we're mentally struggling, we might be having a lot of aches or pains or headaches or nausea that we don't really have an actual reason to be having physically. It's just that there it is occurring mentally for us and it's causing those physical somatic symptoms. So that's my definition of mental health. It's pretty broad actually. Yeah, it's a really broad question. I just think that it's interesting, like, what is comes off the top of um, people's head when they think of mental health, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you and I talked um, pre-interview, um, you kind of shared your story with me about why and how you got to be a psychotherapist and why it is that you're so passionate about it is what you do. Do you mind sharing that story with us? I would be happy to. So my journey to being a mental health professional is definitely not a straight line. It wasn't something that I decided I was going to do when I was just graduating school and I didn't originally intend to be in this industry. Um, Originally, I was in banking And um, I had built a career around banking. My family was in banking. It just seemed like a natural progression for me. But physically, I ended up becoming very ill and I had a brain tumor that pretty much wiped out my capacity to do math. (laughs) And so when your, your whole career is centered around numbers and then you lose that capacity, it for me sent me into a negative mental health spiral where I had anger that I could not do the things that I used to be able to do that I knew I wanted to do. Um, And no matter how much I tried, I couldn't quite seem to get it back. And I knew other people were relying on me to be able to do those things. And I just couldn't do them anymore. So 
I had a real struggle with, I could just be angry and be depressed and never want to get up or do anything or, or move again. I could basically decide that my life was done or I could choose to redirect myself. And I think that really happened for me because I did have a good uh, therapist at the time that was really helping me work through all of that anger that I had over just my life being interrupted so abruptly. And it occurred to me not everybody had that same uh, support group or support system. So I thought, well, if I'm going to redirect myself, maybe that's what I need to redirect myself into because I thought, what happens to those people? who don't have that team there holding them up and telling them you can do this. Um, So that was it for me. I went back to school and got a behavioral science uh, bachelor's and a master's in clinical counseling, and then went on to get a doctor of health professional education and just made it my passion to help other people on their journey. That is like one of the most inspiring stories that I've heard thus far um, doing this podcast or not even just this podcast, but like in life in general (laughs) for you to, you know, you hear about, you know, like a pro uh, athletes that have an accident and like their arm or their leg or something in their entire life is like that they had planned is like over. And it's not so easy for people to bounce back. Even if they do have a support system, mentally, the struggle is just so hard. Yeah. I think for me, what it really showed me and taught me was we as human beings have a capacity to endure far more pain and discomfort than we imagine. And I think we often limit ourselves and and tell ourselves that we can't take anymore when the truth is, yes, yes, we can. We can endure far more than we ever imagined. Yeah. Um, I recently started watching uh, this um, reality TV show on Hulu and it's, um, they're putting all these people to the test for um, like special ops, like Navy SEAL. And the people that you see that you're like, okay, this person is like physically like adequate. Like he's going to like get through these courses. Like he's going to beat all of them. And then you see like this little like scrunchy, like broken, like little white girl. <laughs> and yeah. like she beats everybody through the course because mentally like she's got it together and it has resilience. Yeah. It's so crazy. And so I'm like, I want to get out there and do an obstacle course. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's all about resilience and grit and determination. And our brains will believe what we tell them. So if we tell ourselves that we're going to do this no matter what, regardless, then that's what we're going to end up doing because we don't allow ourselves to see another alternate solution. If we tell ourselves, well, that's it, my life's done, then that's what we're going to believe. So it really all comes down to mindset. Right. It is. It. is. I've seen that throughout my life whenever um, 
I, I came from a very small, small, small town in um, Georgia. And um, whenever I turned 18, I, out of nowhere, was like, I want to be an actress and I want to model. Well, I didn't know a single actor or model or anyone that was doing remotely anything close to that. And I just set my mind to it, though. And next thing I know, things started happening. Um, there was like a, a newspaper, newspapers back in the day, guys, that people read. Um, there was like a local um, low-budget movie that was being shot. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get in this movie, but I'm, I'm doing it. I found out where the people lived. I went. I knocked on their door. I auditioned. They gave me the lead role, like, right away. And let me just tell you, I was awful, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that led to another, to another, to another. And then so I started traveling by myself at the age of 18 years old. I'd never been on a plane before. And, yes, you know, changing, just setting your mind to something. It's crazy, like, how things happen. They don't happen the way that, like, you have in your mind, you know? Right. So, yes, like mindset is everything and our brains are so powerful. And I don't know why, like our minds and brains haven't been at the forefront of medicine all along. Right. Yes. Right. It's like right. It's, it's the engine to our car. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, would you build a car and not check out the engine? Like, right. I don't know why, like the mindset and the brain was like last on the priority list in medicine. I would agree with that. I think we have just sort of done ourselves a huge disservice in that it took us so long to fully understand that connection between the mind and the body and, and how that works. Um, And I think we're still learning. I don't think that we have uh, really scratched the surface hardly. I think we understand that there's a connection. I think we don't really understand all that that connection implies. Um, But I do see that it's getting better. And I hope that it continues to go that way, because I think that is really where the future of medicine sort of lies, is let's understand that your whole system and that your brain is basically the the heart and soul and and hard drive really of, of how this machine that we call your body works. And without it, you're in big trouble. Yes. Yes. I mean, we can basically be brain dead and still be alive, but we're just a body. Right. Your whole personality is, is absent at that point. And so, Came brain dead, like that the doctors would have figured it out. Like, <laughs> we need to focus, right. <laughs> right? But they didn't, so no, twenty twenty three, and Just struggling. <laughs> we are scratching the surface, but you know what? It makes me so excited because you know we're finally getting answers and i'm getting yeah. answers to me as to why i am the way i am and i'm not running around like a chicken with my head cut off and all of this pain and dysfunction and not having answers as to why 
Yes. Say that that has probably helped you tremendously just feeling like you have some answers and not feeling like you're alone in it or feeling like you have no direction. Uh, Because I've seen so many people who go to the doctor saying, you know, I just don't feel well. I have this headache that never wants to go away, et cetera. And then the doctors end up saying, well, um, it's migraines, but what if it's not migraines? What if it's depression? And they struggle along and they're taking five, six, seven different types of migraine medication and not getting any better. And they feel like they're just beating their head against a brick wall. And I think that can be as harmful as the actual problem. Feeling like you're not getting help can make it so much worse. Yes. Not having answers as to why you are the way you are, even if you are unaware of it, is super frustrating in so many ways. Um, I know that... Bubby, Bubby, no, sir. I'm locking you out. Lock it off. Okay, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but like I was saying, um, I I don't have all the answers yet. Um, but just knowing that there's people out there right now that are digging for the answers and looking for them because of where we are in life right now um, with medicine and mental health is it's hopeful. You know, yes, it gives you hope. Yeah. And we all like, we can't live without hope. Like we have, no, we need it to just get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Honestly. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So I have a question for you. So, you said you had a, a brain injury, right? And, yes. And you lost like all of your memory to do basically. Yes. So, is there like a sector of the brain that just holds like that that one spot? Because you know how they used to—I forget the term for it. Um, Doctor um, Sam Azed mentioned it on the last podcast, but he was talking about how they used to take out little parts of the brain for lobotomized people. Right. So is, is it like that? So when I describe the brain to people, I describe it more like think of your brain as being like butter that's been left on the Thanksgiving table all day. And it's super soft and, and gooey and like gelatinous. And then think of the inside of your skull as being this um, cavity that has this fluid in it, which the pressure of that fluid changes. Sometimes it's stronger, sometimes it's less. But remember, the inside of your skull doesn't necessarily mimic the outside. So the outside of our skull is smooth, right? Like it may have some bumps, but it's really not got any sharp pointy spots that are going to damage something if it hits it. On the inside of your skull, you actually have barbs that are super sharp. So if your brain is pushed against those barbs, it can cause damage. 
or if you have an internal growth in the brain, it can cause damage. Um, there are a lot of different ways that a brain can actually be harmed. For me, I had a tumor that actually took up a large chunk of space and the brain kind of moved around it. And then after we removed that tumor, they ended up um, finding that that cavity where that tumor had existed wasn't going away. It wasn't shrinking back up. So the excess cerebral spinal fluid, my brain was producing extra cerebral spinal fluid, trying to fill that space. And that actually was causing so much pressure. My brain thought the tumor still was there and still existed. So I was still having the seizures and vomiting and all of those symptoms, even after we had removed the tumor. So then we had to do another surgery that um, allowed them to put a shunt into the brain that helped to drain that extra cerebral spinal fluid and take that pressure off. So in my case, I can't say to you it's because the tumor was in this certain area because it was a tumor. It was pressure. It was a shunt being placed. It was all of those things. And we don't know what part of it exactly caused the, the loss of the math functioning for me. And I'm never going to know. That's part of the journey for me is having to accept that I am not the same as I was. I'm not going to be the same as I was, but being okay with who I am now, even though I may look like the same person on the outside, I'm not the same person on the inside. And me accepting myself is what makes it possible for other people to accept me. And if I hadn't gotten to that point, they wouldn't have been able to even learn to love this person that I am now. So that's another reason why my journey took me on the path that I am on, because I think learning to love yourself and accept yourself is such a huge part of mental health. It's the hardest, one of the hardest parts of especially if you are someone who is used to giving to others. Like I have no problem giving to others all day long. And then mm -hmm. I'll go at the end of the day and be like, what did I do for myself? You know? Right. Yeah. So, um, over the past couple of years, I have to make sure that I do daily tasks for myself, especially because I do suffer with such severe uh, clinical depression. Yes. So I have to be like, okay, Jackie, like right now is the time. This is this moment right here is for you. Like you do this. And especially since I don't have a support system too. Luckily, I have a good job right now. I'm a teacher and I feel like my students really do love me while their reviews of me say that they do. So <laughs> that's good. Um, they're all really supportive. And so is so are the staff and my bosses. Um, which I have never had that before. So that's been really good on my healing journey because I am on a healing journey right now. And let me tell you, it is not fun. <laughs> I'm not having fun <laughs> like at all. So you're in the you're in the middle of that um, process, that discomfort, and recognizing you can endure more than you expected. It doesn't mean that it's fun while you're in that process. Um, I don't think any of us necessarily like the discomfort, but I think it's important to remember 
life is not meant to be comfortable. I think we have this sort of mistaken idea in our head that we should have a comfortable life and that we can just relax and everything's going to be easy. But if you think about it, we don't come into this world in a comfortable way. Like birth is traumatic and it is a a very unpleasant experience if you really get down to it. Death is a traumatic event and usually it is not a pleasant experience for the most part. Like if you are one of those people who get lucky and you get to leave this world in your sleep, I am thinking you've you've got it made, but most people don't actually get to leave in that way. Why do we tell ourselves that the in-between is going to be all sunshine and rainbows and we're not going to experience discomforts? That's a story that we make up in our head that we think life is supposed to be a fairy tale and supposed to be pretty. And that's really not how life actually works. Thank you, Disney. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Actually, not so much because some of their movies, like... Some of their movies lately are a little scary. Well, yeah, too. And, you know, they have death and stuff like Bambi and four times. So I remember I would sob when the dinosaur's mom died when I was a kid. <laughs> um, but still, they they still put on the persona that the yes. Yes, there's fairy tales. And, yeah. and sadly, those moments are for our uh, daydreaming, our, our our sleeping dreams, our time of rest yeah. to yes. regenerate ourselves with. <laughs> life is everything but comfortable. Yes. And, you know, I had recently found myself like trying to create a life of comfortability. Mm. And then I was like, what are you doing, Jackie? Because I have, I'm not done growing. I'm not, I don't want to stop where I'm at right now. I'm miserable where I'm at right now. Um, I'm, I'm better than I used to be, but like, I don't want to stop right here. And I've never grown in a space of comfort. Now I've needed comfort to help heal some of my inner wounds. Yes. And move forward. But, but those have their place in time. But it's the discomfort that I have grown and that has shaped my character and that has made me want to help people and care about other people. Yes. I think you said it really well when you said you weren't finished growing. Like, if you think about it, when you're a kid and you have growing pains, growing pains hurt. Yeah. They're, they're not comfortable. And I think mentally we have to understand that we have growing pains our whole life. And if you're not growing, then you're not really living. And I don't think that that's a healthy state to be in. I think we are meant to continue to learn and grow our whole existence. Um, So when we start to find ourselves in that place where we're trying to be comfortable, it's more like, are we trying to be comfortable or are we trying to avoid conflict and avoid pain? And you have to really get honest with yourself and ask yourself those questions. Yeah, you do. Um, You know, I used to always say, and I haven't said it enough lately, I need to keep reminding myself that life is not happening to me. It's happening for me. Yeah. 
and that there is a blessing and a lesson in everything that happens to me, no matter how bad that it may seem. Yes, absolutely. Something so powerful that we can take out of those moments to shape us into being strong humans and yes. in a positive way, you know, and that's a mindset because, you know, you have people, you have people out there, like when you're a kid, most of us experience some kind of trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To different degrees. Um, yeah. I actually just read a study about it yesterday. I was working on another project and I read a study that said over 80% of us experience trauma at least once in our life. Yeah. So the majority of of adults who are out there have experienced trauma on some level. Um, But by the time you graduate high school, more than 50% of kids have experienced trauma. So I think those are important statistics. And I don't think we pay enough attention to that. We just think that we're going to go through life unscathed and that's not really life. Life does not look that way. It doesn't look, well, at least my life has never looked that way. So <laughs> like, I have no idea what the other side looks like <laughs> um, at all. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, I kind of see things kind of black and white when it comes to trauma as a kid, as far as how you're going to be when you grow up. Mm-hmm. I see it as you either become super damaged and you end up hurting other people or mm-hmm. you take it on and you're like, I don't want this to happen to anyone one else and I'm going to change yeah. these. I've only seen those two types of people. Now, I, I don't know what yeah. your perspective is on that. I don't think you're wrong. I think it comes down to a choice. I think it comes down to that personal inner resilience like we talked about earlier like you can choose to become bitter and angry and self-centric or you can choose to say this is something that I have learned and grown from and how can I help other people so they don't have to experience the same things that I've experienced yeah I agree um and I believe that that's the root of kind of where narcissism begins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's like a huge topic right now. So yes. um, I know that you deal a lot in relationships, mm-hmm. right? And yes. So I would like to talk about um, relationship abuse, like mm-hmm. broad spectrum, like, mm-hmm relationship with your parents, friendship, uh, uh, partnership, uh, marriage, um, and the abuse cycles Mm -hmm. and kind of how those people do not understand. They're just now coming around to like narcissistic abuse, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. If you start looking online, like one person will be like, oh, a narcissist is, and they'll put like, blank 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 but it's not that simple there's a lot of different type of narcissists and not every narcissist acts the same right yes it's such a it's such a a subtle uh Mm -hmm. so subtle and some of them seem to be really caring people and i know i know some psychologists that that study this stuff that have 
gotten swindled into relationships with me. I'm one of them. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just start with narcissists exist in every relationship, not just romantic relationships, but they exist in work relationships, parent-child relationships, sibling relationships, friendships. They, they exist across the board. Um, but I think it's also important that we understand the difference between narcissistic traits and narcissistic tendencies versus like narcissistic personality disorder. Um, there are clear definitions of what we clinically would call narcissistic per- personality disorder. In fact, uh, we use what's called the DSM-5. It's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual uh, for Mental Health. And that has nine characteristic traits that you're going to look for in somebody who has narcissistic personality disorder. They don't have to have all nine traits. They have to have about five of those nine traits. But the more they have, the more evident it is that this is an issue for them. And you're looking for all of those characteristics, plus you're looking to see, is it impacting their interpersonal relationships? Is it impacting how they're functioning on a daily uh, living kind of situation? And so in order to be diagnosed with something like NPD, you really do have to have a clinical professional do a lot of assessments and really get down to it. But I think what people fail to understand is NPD is not the only disorder that carries these narcissistic traits. You could have somebody who has borderline personality disorder with narcissistic tendencies that can be incredibly destructive in their interpersonal relationships, uh, but maybe they're not technically considered a narcissist because they don't have that diagnosis. So, I think it's really just important that people understand just because somebody has narcissistic tendencies, it doesn't make them a narcissist. Um, Just because somebody doesn't have a diagnosis doesn't mean that they're not a narcissist. It's a very broad spectrum of behavior to look at. Um, I would also say when it comes to narcissistic abuse, Um, I don't care what kind of relationship it is, if it's a parent-child relationship or if it's a romantic partner relationship. Narcissistic abuse is very, very real. And you're right when you describe it as being very subtle because um, one of the characteristics we see very often with the narcissist is that they will use manipulation tactics like love bombing, especially in the very beginning of a relationship. So they will suck you in and, and trap you with those manipulations before you start to see these other characteristics that are really like concerning. And there's, um, there's some deceptiveness going on. There's gaslighting going on, telling you that what you think happened didn't really happen. Um, and that can all be very confusing. Yeah. Saying things like it wasn't that bad or that didn't really happen. You're just exaggerating or, 
well, it wasn't bad all the time. <laughs> yeah, right. Those are all good examples of gaslighting. Um, the other really, really important piece for narcissistic abuse that I think needs to be talked about is that it knows no boundaries when it comes to socioeconomic barriers, to gender, to race, to culture. None of that changes it. We see it in every area of the world, every population. It's a global problem. It's not just here in the United States. It's not a women-only issue. Um, it's, it's prevalent, and it's in everything. The other thing I would tell you is it can happen to anyone. I don't care how smart you are. You can still be sucked in by a narcissist if you do not like really know what you're looking for. Um, I myself was in a relationship with a narcissistic abuser for 15 years before I was able to pull myself out. And that's after all the education that we already talked about that I had. I'm very aware of what narcissistic personality looks like, and I still manage to find myself in that type of abuse. So don't, if you are one of those people who are listening to this and you start telling yourself, well, I should have known better. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. That's one of the biggest issues with narcissistic abuse is that they're so good at hiding who they are. The persona that you see is usually a false shell. It's a mask. It is not who they really are on the inside. Um, often they have very little understanding of who they really are. Oh, yeah. Most of them have an identity crisis. They have yes. no idea. Like yes. Sit down and have a conversation like, who are you? They don't. Oh, they can't tell you that. For you. It's like. What? No, they they know who they're pretending to be, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like there are a lot of different people. It's like they pick up different traits from. Okay, I like this about this person because yes, them from A to Z to here. So let me pick up that trait from that. Person. Yes, okay, this person over here. Okay, that's working out for them. Let me pick up that one over here. And it's like there's yes. of so many different people around them. There's a reason for that. So from a clinical perspective, somebody with this type of personality dysfunction is deeply insecure. They may present to the world as being uber confident or having everything together, but in reality on the inside, they are so insecure and they are worried that everything is going to fall down around them all the time. So they do look for those traits and characteristics that seem to be working for other people. And what they do is they become a chameleon and they then adapt and start to use those or at least mimic them in a way to make themselves look like they've got their stuff together when in reality they're struggling. Yes. And typically from what I have experienced is they... They want people to always think that they have it together unless, and you're not going to see this unless you are like in their inner, inner circle. I'm talking like yes. you're talking to them every day. You stay yes. with them. Like, so they'll get up in the morning and they'll put a 
full face of makeup on or they look like they are dressed to the nines. They normally need to have like a newer looking vehicle, like they're mm -hmm. up and up and it's a persona. Yes. Now the behavior you're describing right now is, is usually seen in people who are more overt with the narcissism. So they have this huge grandiosity of who they think they should be. And they're trying to have everything on the outside match that idea. Now, what's dangerous is that there's a covert narcissism and covert narcissists they may not be as um, outwardly expressive with wanting like the latest car or to dress a certain way, but they have a very clear idea and image of what they want people to think of them. And so anytime anything threatens that image or even just threatens to sort of take the focus away from them, even if it's in a subtle way, they're going to lash out at it. Yeah. And you're going to see those are the ones that when they're out in public, they're always turned on. They're having so much fun. They're going to be the ones who volunteer to help other people. Right. But then you get that person at home and it's like somebody flipped a switch and they are yelling at their spouse, yelling at their kids, kicking the dog. Um and just berating and tearing down the relationships around them. Yeah, it's kind of weird, though, because uh, the narcissist that I dated, my ex, was like a mix between both. You can have a mix, yes. Yeah, so there was definitely a mix between the two. And education on this has helped me move through the relationship and go no contact because I'm no longer trying to reach back looking for answers that I was never going to get anyways. Right. But educating myself has been the best thing that I can do. But yes, when you are saying like they care so much about what other people think about them, about their, their character, mm -hmm. like my ex would, he would want to know every conversation that I had with his daughter. Mm-hmm. Old detail. And mm -hmm. like, for instance, one time we didn't tell him and we surprised mm -hmm. them with a dog. And oh my God, he's like, you guys are hiding secrets. And I'm like, it was a surprise. Like, whoa. And he's like, I want to know what was said during this conversation. Yeah. Like, and if you overstep those, if you overstep those whatever, they're not even boundaries, those lines, if you overstep those lines with them, they will cut you out of their life Yes, right away. Like I remember one of his family members like came out and was telling me stuff that he was doing. And this was a family member that he was very close to. And he cut that family member off cold turkey. Yeah. Well, the, one of the problems with this type of personality is like you said, it's not a boundary. It's this imaginary, invisible, like line or hurdle that they've set up, and you don't know it's there. No. It's it's like a landmine, and you have no idea that it is coming, and then you end up stepping on this landmine, and the next thing you know, it's like 
everything is exploding around you because that person is having a reaction that is, it seems very um, irrational. And so what that does for the person on the receiving end of that kind of fury, because really it's more than just anger. Um, This is like an explosiveness. And so the person on the receiving end of that starts to constantly become hypervigilant looking for the next landmine because they're afraid that they're going to set that off again. That's where we get that walking on eggshells kind of feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's so crazy. Um, my ex wasn't really one to like, didn't really blow up a lot. He kind of had, but like you could tell, like it was in him, you know. And it was he used passive aggressive. Yeah, Uh, come out when he was like drinking because he's an alcoholic too. So mm. not thin, or it would come out in like the tiniest argument with his daughter or something like that. Like like, a whoa, you know, like that was not needed for like the dishes not being done. Like okay, right? Yes, yeah. So um. What are some key points do you think for our listeners? Because I know you and I are survivors of of, of narcissistic abuse. And for the longest time, like, and my ex is not the first one that I've been through. This is my second one. And my, my mom was even narcissistic whenever I was younger. Now she's not anymore Mm -hmm. at all. But mm-hmm. I'm a firm believer in God and like, and my mom is very in with yeah. Jesus and like, I'm just going to have to say it like she's changed and that's hard to say for narcissism because like most of them don't change. You have to become yeah. self-aware yes. and want to get help. Mm-hmm. And well, well I think part of what you're describing is the difference between narcissistic tendencies and narcissistic personality disorder. So clinically, we know people with narcissistic personality disorder have a very tiny chance of really rehabilitating that behavior because they don't truly experience empathy. So and empathy, once you get into adulthood, is not really something we can teach. It's something that has to be cultivated in childhood, cultivated during that learning window. But somebody with narcissistic tendencies, maybe they have um, another mental health condition, like let's say borderline personality disorder. Borderline personalities do actually experience empathy. They have a lot of the same characteristics as uh, narcissism narcissistic personalities, but they can experience empathy. They can experience guilt and shame. And that is what makes the difference. If somebody has the ability to actually feel empathy for the other person and recognize that they're causing damage and causing harm, those people can absolutely work through some of those narcissistic tendencies. It's the people who don't have empathy that are really scary. And those are the people that there's not really much chance of change. I'm glad that you said that because 
I have gotten to the point now where like right now, you know, like I said, narcissistic abuse is like a huge topic and it's becoming very popular, but to the point where everybody's like, Oh, you're a narcissist. You're a narcissist. You're a narcissist. <laughs> right. And I'm trying to catch myself from not doing that. So I'm glad that you separated the two with that because I love my mom so much and she's the only support that I have. And I'm just so proud of her. So <laughs> <laughs> good for her for putting the work in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she did. She she did the work and she's yeah. a soldier. And I don't know what I would do without her. But so, we, so okay, sorry. Um, what I would say for people who are in a relationship with somebody who it doesn't really matter if they have narcissistic tendencies or if they have narcissistic personality disorder, it can make for a toxic relationship environment. So I think the question becomes, is this something that can be worked on? Number one, is this something I want to work on? Number two. And, um, if you find that you can work on it with the other person, that they actually do understand and register that they're causing damage and that you actually still want to work on it, then it's something that can be worked on with a professional help. I don't think it's something that you can read a self-help book and get over, but I do think you have to find somebody who can help you navigate that. Because it can get very twisted in, in the process of trying to untangle it. If you have somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, the odds are they're not going to recognize what they're doing is harmful. And they're not going to care that it's causing you pain. So when you have somebody like that, going to therapy with someone like that is not even going to be helpful. All they're going to do is try and get the therapist to align with their goals of changing the person that they want to make them do what they want. Um, so I think it's important to really look at it and say, is this something that can be fixed? If not, you have to be strong enough to know that you have worth and you have value regardless of what that person is saying to you. And you have to respect that enough to remove yourself from that environment. Yes. And I'm so glad that you said that because for years, especially since I grew up in the South, I would always be like, I don't care if you're blood related. You're not my family unless you're someone that is there for me and, and I'm there for you. Like obviously, and that we have an open relationship to where we allow each other to fail but then we help mm -hmm. them get back up it's okay to make mistakes but we're not tearing yeah. each other down um and we're not toxic mm. to each other you know and people, right. people i just the way that i grew up especially like in the church would be like that's your family like you better respect this and you better do that and i would be like no i'm sorry yeah. i'm not doing that so i was kind of like the black sheep yeah i would say to you Blood is thicker than water is not in the Bible. No, it's not. But boy, do they preach it. Yeah. So um, that whole idea that, you know, we're born into a family and no matter how awful somebody's treating you, you still have to stick with them without any kind of um, amends or anything like that is ridiculous. I, I just 
think that that is one of the most harmful things. Um, I don't care whether you're born into this situation or you're in it because you've gotten in a romantic relationship. Maybe it's a work colleague. Maybe it's somebody you work with on a regular basis. It doesn't matter who it is. If they're treating you in a way that diminishes your value as a human being in order to make them feel bigger or stronger or better, it's not okay and you need to get out of it. So that's the bottom line for me. It's mental abuse. And that means it's causing you pain emotionally and uh, mentally you're going to find that you've got things like brain fog happening. You've got anxiety. You've got depression. Maybe your appetite is getting reduced because all that stress is just making it where you don't feel hungry anymore. Maybe you're not sleeping. That is physically harmful to you as a person. And anything that is causing you any kind of distress to that extreme is abuse and it needs to go. And you are the one who's responsible for saying, this is my line and you cannot come any further because I'm not going to expose myself to something that is toxic and harmful in that way. Yes, and I'm so glad now that we are able to say that actions like that are abuse because when I was growing up, that was not a thing. Uh, Yes, the same. I would say what we know now because, you know, in the beginning we talked about we're just now starting to look at how everything impacts the mind. But what we know is that your brain doesn't actually differentiate in physical pain versus emotional pain. It just registers pain. So if we put you in an fMRI machine and we tell you, hey, I just killed your dog, that's going to cause your brain to have pain and it's going to light up and register on the screen. If we took a hammer and whacked you in the knee, you're still going to feel pain and your brain is going to light up and it's going to light up in the same area. Your brain is just going to register. This is pain and, and we don't need that. So I think it's really important for people to understand emotional pain, physical pain. I don't care what kind of pain it is. If it is causing you pain, it is causing you harm. It needs to be addressed. Yes. Yes. And I think that's why it's so important, again, for us to educate ourselves. And that's why one of the reasons why I've started this podcast is Mm -hmm. to educate myself and other people um, on all different forms of abuse so that we can better ourselves and we can say, you know what, that person in our life is not healthy. Like, Like, that's. No wonder why I feel so drained when I'm around this person. Yes. And it's it's just so important for us to be able to grow, to go to the next level. Um, yes. We don't need an extra rock on our back dragging us down. What, what I would say, too, is that you mentioned a lot of the way you were brought up and the way you were raised. And it sounds like you were raised in um, a similar situation to me where you're supposed to be nice. And you're supposed to be kind. And that often was sort of portrayed as you just forgive the other person, even if they don't ask for forgiveness, or even if they're, they continue to do it, you're still supposed to be nice. My response to that is, yes, you are supposed to be kind. 
to the other person, but sometimes being kind means letting them know that their behavior is harmful. Sometimes being kind looks like saying, hey, this isn't working for me. And in order for me to give you the best part of me, we're going to have to adjust some things. I don't really think it's kind to sweep everything under the rug. And that's what we tend to see with narcissistic abuse is because there's this shame and there's guilt attached to it, we tend to sweep it under the rug and pretend like it's not happening. And that's actually not being kind to the other person and it's not being kind to you either. Yeah, not at all. I mean, for me, for my last relationship, um, like I said, it was my second narcissistic abuse relationship. So the second I started seeing the same traits in this person as the first one, my senses went off like, oh, no, oh, no, like this cannot be happening again. This is not mm-hmm. But I had already at that time already been pulled and sucked in Mm -hmm. and I already had those love goggles on and I wished I had a hammer that would just crack love goggles because, oh, Uh you know how you, how once you finally get out of that stage and you look back at that person and you're just, oh, whoa. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yes. Very nice. You look at that person and you're just like, oh my God, they're like. Every, they're your person yeah like, <laughs> yes. like everything and I'm just like yes. oh my god <laughs> in my own experience um after I had been out of my abusive relationship for about two years I I stumbled across a picture um of my ex and was just number one floored at that I could have found that attractive. And then number two, I noticed this like blank deadness in his eyes. And that was what struck me most. So I actually went back and looked at all the pictures that I I could find. And I made sure I felt safe to do this. It wasn't like I just dove into it. But I went back and I noticed he had that blank empty stare in every photo going all the way back to our wedding photo. Like this isn't something that I could have caused or that you could have caused in your relationship. This is something hardwired in who they are. And it happened way before we ever came into their world. And we are not at all able to pull them out of it. Right. Um, It's funny that you mentioned that because one of the last things that I said to my ex was your behavior and how you are. This started with you long before I ever met you, like years. Yes. And yes. he was like, that's so unfair for you to say. And I'm like, honey, just because your ex-wife didn't have the education to point out what was going on with you and she's mm-hmm. been you for 20 something years does not mean that you have people fooled. Like this yes. can't happen overnight. This is clearly hardwired at the core. Yes. No. This what I would say overnight. is what we now know is people who actually have true NPD 
it's usually developed early in childhood before the age of seven. And once they kind of hit that mark, it's very much that their neuropathways are so entrenched and so ingrained in this type of behavior pattern that there's not a way to, to break it, to pull them back from it. If, um, if you pay attention, you're going to see, if you call them out on it, they'll try to get better for, you know, maybe two weeks, maybe a month, but it never lasts because as soon as they start to get comfortable again, their brain goes back to that automatic thermostat setting of where they were before. And the, the same pattern starts happening all over again. Yes. 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 Gosh, you just nailed it on the head. Um, I, I'm sure people can, that are listening to this, that are going through something similar can relate with the, oh, I'm going to change, or I'm going to start going to therapy and they'll go to one session or they mm-hmm. won't yeah. all for two nights or they'll mm-hmm. go to an AA meeting, but right. it didn't work out. Or they'll, they'll go to church. Um, I get that one a lot where they'll go to church and that doesn't last either. I don't even want to talk about church because my ex was a youth pastor and that's just a whole <laughs> That religious shaming is a very real thing. I will just drop that one for you. That's just a whole bomb within itself. So, um, yeah. So, okay. So I know one thing that has frustrated me a lot with uh, these situations is you know, I've lost a lot of people in my life. Nobody that was really, um, like that close to me, but just people in general, like if I reached out for help or to vent on social media, which by the way, guys, social media is not the place to get online and vent about something like this because people will tear you down. Yes. I'm someone like Dr. Shiloh or Dr. Sam Zed or a local psychiatrist or Get a book on narcissistic abuse or something like that and educate yes. yourself because people online are not educated and they will tear you down and they will make you feel yeah. like there's something wrong with you and that you are being crazy. And at the same time, your your narcissistic ex or, or whatever yeah. is already telling you that you're crazy and it's just going to add more poop onto the poop pile and we don't do yes. it anymore. <laughs> it's very unproductive. You need to be building your network of support and that can look like, you know, one to three or four, maybe even close confidants that you can talk to, get a good mental health professional on your team. And then do your homework and educate yourself because, and you've said this a couple of times, when you have one narcissist in your life, I would place odds that you have more than one. Yeah. We we don't just attract one narcissist because they all kind of have the same favorite flavor of person that they're looking for. So if one is attracted to you, you need to know you're attracting all the other ones too. So the more education you can do for yourself, the better you are at spotting them before it creeps up on you. Yes. And that's uh, here recently, like I've been very open and vulnerable on my social media about my healing journey. And I don't go into great detail about everything, but 
like I say, like I'm going through like healing through narcissistic abuse or childhood trauma or whatever. But I will say that, um, I'm sorry, what were you saying right before then? I lost my train of thought. I was saying that they need to do their homework and educate themselves so that it doesn't happen again. Oh, yeah. So I had something I was going to say on that, but then my brain just completely like. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Um, But yes, educate, educate, educate yourself. It's the best thing that you can do for that situation. Um, And it's the best thing that I've been able to do in order to uh, show up for myself and not go back. So when you and I were talking previously, we were talking about the actual trauma and brain damage that these things cause. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So one thing I would say is, you know, we talked about how the brain processes pain, but when you're in pain, your, your body has like this response to pain that it will dilate your blood vessels and things like that to help alleviate pain. It doesn't register that the pain you're experiencing is an emotional pain. It still does that. So you can actually get brain damage from your blood vessels in your brain being constricted or dilated depending on the circumstance so much. You can also experience what we call um, an overproduction of cortisol and adrenaline. And when that starts happening, it's that fight or flight freeze uh, fear response that we tend to get it's usually associated with those chemicals because they flood your prefrontal cortex. And your prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain that makes executive functioning decisions. So it's the part of your brain that allows you to have intelligent conversation, to ask, is this healthy? Is this not healthy? Is this a good decision or a bad decision? It also impacts your memory So your ability to um, take in information and process it gets impaired when your prefrontal cortex is not working correctly. So it's super important to register that you're actually experiencing a physical side effect that's very harmful and it takes time for that to heal. So I like to tell my people that I work with who are experiencing this type of trauma that I want them to consider it to be any other kind of brain trauma and that they have to give themselves time and the amount of time that it requires to actually heal from that kind of trauma is far greater than what they probably are estimating. A lot of times when you break up with somebody, they're like, I'll be better in six months (laughs) and I'll have moved on and I'll have healed. Well, that may work if it's like a healthy relationship But in a narcissistic abuse relationship where there is this kind of flooding of the brain and all of that, it can take years. It can take several years for your brain to actually start to heal from that damage. Um, In my situation, I noticed that overproduction of cortisol and adrenaline made my body 
become so um, used to that flooding, it kind of felt like it wanted to protect me physically. And what that meant was it prevented me from losing weight um, because it thought I was dying. So it was trying to store weight to, to keep me alive. And then I, I would say like, that was one of the major indicators for me that I had reached a, a really significant point in my healing was I woke up one morning and that changed. I also noticed things like uh, physical skin rashes that I had no reason to be having a rash. But when I actually started to go back and pick it apart and really examine it, I noticed I would get a rash every year around the anniversary of the day that I left my abusive relationship. And so my brain was responding to that trauma. And every year on the anniversary, I was breaking out in hives and and having like a severe allergic reaction. And then that was another indicator for me that I was starting to heal was I was able to recognize that before it happened, give myself space so that I wasn't adding anything extra to my plate around that time. And then when I was able to get through that time without having a rash and all of the negative things, that's how I knew my healing was starting to actually change as far as my brain. Because then once I reached that point between the rash and the weight, everything started melting off. And it was like 15 pounds went off within no time when my body just decided to reset itself. So you really have to give yourself permission to just be in it and not expect yourself to snap back overnight and not judge yourself for maybe not recovering as quickly as you want to. Understand that you can do the work, you can do the steps, but your brain is just going to take time to process. Yes, I'm so glad that you said that. <clears throat> Love how you explain everything because it's just so easy to understand. Um, a lot of uh, times, some of the doctors that I talk to, I'm like, I get what they're saying, but I'm like, <laughs> let me Google some stuff real fast. <laughs> but um, yeah, you just lay it out plain, and I love that. And um, I have noticed a huge difference in um, my memory. Like, you know, a few minutes ago, I completely just exited out of what my what I was thinking it'll come back to me. So what I was actually thinking is what I was saying is I, because I am not healed, I refuse to date anyone because yes. I, oh, sorry, my <laughs> Okay. Okay. Um, I know that I'm going to attract those same people. Yes. And I'm so terrified right now because I, I can't handle one more. I can't, my brain, my body, I can't do one more. So yeah. I'm like, for the first time in my life, I'm not running to something else to feel my yes. needs temporarily. And I'm having to sit in all of this mess 
and it's not pretty and I come home from work and I have breakdowns and I cry at nighttime before I go to sleep and it's not fun on most mornings. I, it's everything I can do to get myself up out of the bed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just want to say like to everyone out there that this is normal. Yes. And if you have a support system, that's great. Um, the only support system I have is my mom and she lives in Georgia. So I FaceTime her the minute that I get up because I know mm-hmm. if I'm on the phone with her FaceTiming, I can get up and start like doing my day. But if I have to get up on my own, I'm going to get up slow. I My brain takes a while to kind of start getting into a yes. good mindset and like the whole mantra I have to tell myself when I get up is work within itself and all this stuff is normal. It's, it's a battle, guys. It's a battlefield of the mind and it's normal. You've been through abuse. Yes. Um, yes. It's you are hurt. You are damaged a little bit in a way, not permanently, but yet. No. Yes. I want you to think of it like you've gone through a high speed car accident and you've broken almost every major bone in your body and you've got internal injuries. If if you came out of the hospital in a wheelchair and you've got bandages from head to toe, you're not going to expect yourself to jump back into normal life right away. Well, going through this type of abuse mentally is the same. Like you're actively bleeding on the inside. So expecting yourself to bounce back and just go about life as if nothing happened is, well, in my opinion, it's irresponsible. Yeah, it is. And it's totally unrealistic. So I think what you're saying about choosing to not get in another relationship is actually one of the smartest things you can do. I see so many people jump into a new relationship way too quickly. And this is probably an unpopular opinion because a lot of people don't like to be alone. But from a clinical perspective of somebody who works with people on communication and relationships all the time, the best relationships are the ones where you have one healed person comes in contact with another healed person and they work together to have healthy relationships and communication that makes just everything just to a whole new level. It's like you already are the whole cake by yourself. That person is just extra icing that you're going to add. And so when you come into a relationship, if you are not a healed person, it's like you're giving them a cake that is missing ingredients and the relationships aren't going to work out well in that case. That's, that's setting yourself up for more hurt, more heartbreak, more codependency. So my advice to anyone who has been through any kind of narcissistic abuse Do not look for another relationship to fill that vacuum within you. Fill it yourself. Yeah. And it's also kind of irresponsible, too, that you would put that on another human. Exactly. You then become, without maybe you even knowing it, you become a job for them. 
to try yes. to fix and they can not fix you. It doesn't no. matter how much money they have. It doesn't matter how much love they pour into you. If you don't do the work on yourself, yes, you're not going to heal. And this is so close to home to me because I have always looked for an outside source to fill me, except for um, the past like couple of years. Um, I had really gotten close with God and really mm-hmm. had filled my soul, and I was good by myself. And then, boom, the narcissist came. So I obviously wasn't fully healed. And now I'm like, okay, Jackie, we're going to sit here. We're going to sit in all this nastiness. Yeah. And we're going to heal some stuff here. And I don't care how long because nobody else, there's no one coming to save me here. Mm-hmm. No one. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's important to remember that this is the recovery from narcissistic abuse has a lot of grief processing in it. And there's not a one size fits all model for grief. And there's not a one size fits all timeline. And I think it's not something that you should be going, well, so-and-so got over their relationship at a certain speed. Then I need to get over mine too. No, you're going to do it at your pace and you can try to rush it, but eventually that's just going to fail and you're going to be right back where you were before and you're going to have to pick it up and start all over again. Life. So the choice you get to have is like, do I want to do it right this time or do I want to have to repeat this? I don't know about you, but I'm not up for repeating painful mistakes. No. I'm, I'm going to learn from them. Done. Done. <laughs> yeah. You know, life will keep teaching you and giving you the same lessons over and over and over again until you learn them. Yeah. So, um, and grieving is a whole nother thing that you're going to have to educate yourself on because it's a whole process within it. Yes. And so I'm so glad that you said that. Um, so you had also said that like narcissistic abuse creates tears in the, in the brain, right? It, It can. So it can actually make your blood vessels become so weak that they'll actually tear. And, and there's like a, a point where those blood vessels no longer provide the blood flow to the areas of the brain that they were meant to. So then you've got part of your brain that's not getting fed anymore. Does that make sense? Yes. Is that reversible? Well, um, so what I would say is, is it's kind of like when you have a, a tear in in a muscle, um, it, it can sometimes heal depending on how severe the tear is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but more likely you're going to get the blood flow is going to just be redirected from another area. And so it's like with a lot of things, you can endure a little bit of that kind of damage, but the more you put yourself in, uh, the more over time it becomes less and less reversible because there are not backup systems in place. I've noticed, and I don't know what type of um, sessions or what it is I can go through to assess my brain, but I can totally tell that 
especially after this last one and growing up under narcissistic behavior or traits and then dating two narcissists and then just constantly like being around a lot of toxic people my whole life. My brain is not functioning like Mm -hmm. my normal day-to-day tasks have become hard. It is hard Mm -hmm. for me to walk my dogs right now. It is hard for me to do my dishes right now. Mm -hmm. And I have to find self-compassion for myself until Mm -hmm. I can figure out if I do have actual damage here. I don't know what I need to undergo in order to figure that out. Yeah. And it could be um, back to where we had that cortisol and adrenaline just kind of racing through your brain. We do know that at a certain point, our brains almost become addicted to the cortisol, almost become addicted to that adrenaline. So as you start to withdraw from it, like it's not flooding you anymore, your brain has to sort of relearn to live without it. And your executive function, the part that makes just some of your daily functioning easier, may not be fully back online yet. Um, there are some things that you can do that physically can kind of improve that things like going for a walk, even when you don't feel like it going for a walk, even if it's just a 10 minute walk is really shown to actually have a lot of good benefits, um, getting regular exercise. And that doesn't mean it has to be like weightlifting exercise. It can just be moving your body, doing things like yoga, um, helping your body start to stretch itself back out and release some of that tension. Then there are things that are a little more intense, like um, cold therapy, maybe getting a session and doing a cold plunge or cryotherapy. Those things can also be really beneficial to kind of restart that prefrontal cortex. Um, Meditation is helpful. So uh, I recommend that. Also, the more you just sit with it and talk about it, the more those chemicals start to even out. So having a good therapist that you talk to is really important too. It is. And I'm trying to find some, I have some therapists coming on my show because therapists aren't cheap. And that's true. Not everyone can access them. And it's, that's a whole other podcast about our healthcare system and how, Mm -hmm. you know, we are in a mental health crisis right now globally. And it's just so expensive to access help. Yes, you're not wrong. And there's, you know, I want to make it in life to the point to where I have enough money where I can make a foundation that helps pay for people that can't afford to have this type of stuff done to get a psychiatrist mm-hmm. to get a therapist um because even though like i i just live a mediocre life right now but i've been very blessed with being able to have access to that stuff that not everybody has right and so that's why i try to uh, expand my knowledge that's why i'm doing this podcast this is free education you know like nobody's getting yeah for this and and I appreciate people like you that are coming on the show and giving us all this free education because 
not, like I said, not everybody can access it. That, yeah, absolutely. So there was something else I was going to ask you. Okay. So we're a little over an hour here. So I know that you have some holistic medicine that you offer. Yes. And you have some books, correct? Or journals? I do. Um, so I have my my newest book that just came out in September is called Conversational Boundaries. Um, I don't care if you are in a relationship with a narcissist or if you're just in a relationship with a difficult person. We all need good, strong boundaries in order to maintain and manage our stress load. So the, the book is actually designed to help you keep your prefrontal cortex working when you're under stress, because often we'll talk to that person who is antagonistic or putting pressure on us. And then all of a sudden that cortisol is racing again. And then our, our brain is not thinking as clearly as it should. I have designed that book to break it down into areas of conversation that I give you pocket phrases that you can use when you're maybe not able to come up with a response on your own. And so it's kind of a handy resource for you to just have these phrases that shuts down that uncomfortable conversation without you ending up saying yes to something you don't want to say yes to or reliving the conversation over and over and over again in your head. So I do have that book. I also have a companion journal that goes along with that book, which is just a boundaries journal. It um, helps you identify some boundaries that you're strong in versus boundaries that you're maybe a little weak in and that you could use some work in. It's a place for you to really just kind of explore what some of those thoughts and, and feelings look like so that you can establish a safe environment for yourself. The other thing I have, and this one is more um, in particular for anyone who is in a toxic, abusive, or narcissistic relationship, is I have an online program. It's called Exit Strategy, and it is a 12-module program for anyone who is looking to leave an abusive relationship. And what we do is help you understand that relationship, help you understand how you got in that relationship, and help you understand how to get yourself out without going back. So that program is called Exit Strategy, and um, for anyone who's listening to the podcast today, I want to give them a special discount code so that they can get that program for half off. So if you use HFS 50, it's going to give you 50% off of that course. And that's going to be available through December of uh, 2023. Okay. And I will put that code in the show notes below the podcast, everybody. And along with everything that she's mentioned so far about her books and I will even link the websites and everything where we can access all that. I'll get all that. Perfect. Um, and then they can follow me on Dr. Shiloh speaks on Instagram. Yes. 
Um, you can find access to all of that information in my bio on Instagram as well. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then are you just on Instagram or do you have Facebook? Um, so currently I do Dr. Shiloh speaks on Instagram. My in-person brick and mortar business is on Instagram and on Facebook and that's at integrate to connect. Um, I haven't brought Dr. Shiloh Speaks over to Facebook yet, and I'm probably going to do that in 2024. Um, I'm not on TikTok or anything like that. So primarily, you're going to find me on Instagram. You can also find my website, and that is drshilohspeaks.com. Okay, drshilohspeaks.com. I'll put all of this in the show notes again. And um, do you offer, um, if someone is listening to this show and they want to know, um, like what services like you personally offer, um, mm-hmm. what services do you offer and do you offer like online services? Like, yes. Um, so I personally do, um, trauma therapy and I work also with people who have personality disorders I also work with people who are in a relationship with somebody who has a personality disorder to help them understand how they can communicate effectively with their person. Um, So yes, people can work with me one-on-one. They can also, I, my brick and mortar is an integrative medicine practice where we have not just me, but we also have a child therapist as well. We have a functional medicine doctor, a functional nutrition and life coach. Um, so I work with a lot of other holistic minded uh, practitioners that understand it. It's a whole body process. So if you were to reach out to me and it's not something that is in my wheelhouse, I probably do have a good referral source for you. And I'm happy to provide that as well. Amazing. And do you take insurance? I do not take insurance. I am private pay. Private pay. Okay. So that's good to know too. But I offer a sliding scale. Since we did talk about how much things cost, I do offer a sliding scale. Um, And that looks like just a quick form that people have to fill out so that we understand their socioeconomic level and we base their sliding scale on that. Great. I love that. Well, we are officially at the end of the show, even though I don't want to stop this conversation. I could talk to you for hours. You're so great. Um, Oh, thank you. you know how much I appreciate you and how strong you are and Uh, Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I just absolutely love having you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It has been my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Shiloh. We will see you soon. Bye.